Hello and welcome to The Conversation with me, Amanda Decadene. This series of The Conversation is brought to you by VS Voices, another fantastic podcast I host, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the multifaceted nature of the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. On this week's episode, I'm speaking to war journalist Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, welcome to The Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited that we're doing this. I am too. And I have to thank our mutual friend, Lindsay Adario, for connecting us. Yes, yes, yes. She's amazing. She really is. She is my the only woman I know who does her job. And I was talking to her about why there's so few female war journalists and you know, for the obvious reasons. But then she said, do you know Clarissa Ward? You should really talk to her. And I said, I do know her. I've watched her on CNN. And so I'm really pleased that she put us in touch. Yeah. And that's what I love about Lindsay as well, is that sometimes you come across women who are like reluctant to help other women or feel a little bit threatened by the success of other women. And what makes Lindsay ultimately so good at what she does is that she doesn't really have that. She's a big champion of all sorts of people. She really is. And actually working out who the women are who are really in support of other women is crucial because a lot of people actually say that they support women. Posturing. Yeah. A lot. Oh my gosh. I always find it so upsetting. I'm still surprised when I experience firsthand women who have publicly got up on podiums and spoken about how they love and support women. And then you're like, wait a minute, you actually haven't done jack shit to support women other than yourself ever. (laughs) I think there was a generation of women who had to fight so hard to get to where they got and had to be super aggressive and adopt a much more male persona to get a foot in the door. And those women tend to be a little bit tougher. They say they're feminists and in many ways they are. But there is this kind of mentality of like, I had to give so much and sacrifice so much to get my foot in the door. And now there's a little bit of a pull the ladder up feeling. It's actually like a scarcity mindset. It's that so few women actually got to be in those rooms. Exactly. That the mindset was, okay, if I got into this room, I don't want to let anyone else in because they will take the one spot at the table that has been allowed for the woman. And then I will lose my positioning. So I do understand it. But, you know, that's not where we're at anymore. Yeah. The gender issue just must be so omnipresent with you because there are so few women who do what you do. I cannot imagine that you ever do an interview where your gender is not centered. Yeah. What's so funny about it is there are actually like a lot of women who do this work now. But the gender thing is endless fascination for people. And I think for a while it used to drive me a little crazy, but then at a certain point I realized it was so fascinating and not just to men, it was so fascinating to women as well, uh, who didn't have a lot of exposure to this industry. And so you kind of think, all right, well, if it's a genuine topic of human curiosity, then I shouldn't dismiss it outright. And I should, be willing to A, give it a lot of thought and B, accept the fact that I am always going to, at some point in any given interview, talk about this issue because people find it compelling. They have a lot of preconceived, understandable notions that women aren't doing this work, that women have 
been not allowed into this work. And so it is nice to be able to rebut that and actually turn it on its head and make people realize that I think being a woman in this industry can be a huge advantage. That's what Lynn Diodario says. She Mm -hmm. says the same thing, actually, that being a woman has its advantages for her in being able to access places that historically she wouldn't have been able to access had she not been female and that people do let her into places Mm -hmm. and maybe also the way that she's communicating and the way that she's presenting situations. So what would you say have been the advantages for you with your gender in doing your job? So I often joke that sometimes it's a beautiful thing to be underestimated because a lot of the places that I go to, I'm viewed as a sort of curiosity rather than a threat. It's sort of like, who is this woman? She's not threatening. She's not a spy, probably. She's not a mercenary or a militant of some sort. She's just weird. Right. And probably not very harmful, just misguided. And so I'm happy to use that to my advantage and say, yes, you're absolutely right. I know nothing about anything. I'm just here to learn what I can learn and see what I can see. But you have been targeted by Russian agents previously. Well, the Russians traditionally, first of all, yeah, there have been a lot of female Russian spies. And some of them even have worked in the U.S. So they have a different outlook towards gender in general, I would say. I was going to say, for a country that is so misogynistic and patriarchal, to actually look at gender with the acceptance that, no, no, it's quite possible that we could have women who are spies and who are... Well, and I think a lot of that is a hangover from communism because under communism, women were encouraged to work and women could be scientists and women were scientists and are scientists and classical musicians. And so it's this sort of strange juxtaposition that you see there and that I found really difficult to get my head around when I lived there because on the one hand, if you didn't wear high heels... People would look at you like, oh, this is really sad. She doesn't care about having babies and finding a husband. So So what what do you think that disconnect is? What is the discrepancy in concepts? It's a really good question. I would say that, first of all, communism was over for many years by the time I lived in Russia. And privatization and the sort of roller coaster of the 1990s brought a very different culture with it. It was about conspicuous consumption. It was a culture of gangsterism. And a lot of women really had to get by on their looks, honestly. Russian women. You mean like somewhere else in the world? Even more, I would say. I remember being really offended, actually, at the time by a male colleague who shall remain nameless who joked in a deadpan way that at that time in the 1990s, when the situation was so desperate and the economy was in free fall, that you could get laid in Moscow just by having a bar of chocolate. But was that true? I think he's probably exaggerating a little bit, but as a foreigner, as a Western man, it was easy for a guy to punch way above his weight in the looks department in a place like Russia. Yeah, I think that is true. And then it changed a lot because then the Russians got so rich that it was like, well, who are these guys from the West? Like, they're, yeah. they're not billionaires. Yeah, yeah, I'm not interested uh, in them. 
not interested in them anymore. And I would say that Russian women have always been very into their appearances and looking nice. And femininity is a big part of Russian culture and beautifying yourself and making the effort and all that. But the other side of what happened under communism with the women becoming scientists or, or, you know, some of the greatest female poets, Anna Akhmatova, Marina Tsvetaeva, even before communism, then it was like, why would you become a poet or become a scientist when you could try to marry rich? and be a model. Always the dilemma. Always the dilemma. Always the dilemma. So let me ask you about what first drew you to this kind of work. Because as you said, there are not that many women who are visible doing this. It's not the kind of thing where you grow up and you say, oh gosh, look at this woman and that woman and the other woman. That is the job I want to do. How old were you? And how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? So I really had no idea until I was in university in my last year of college. I was at Yale. I was studying comparative literature. I thought I wanted to be an actress. When I lived in the UK, I was a member of the National Youth Theatre and I was really passionate about acting. That was what I thought was going to be my career. And then my senior year at the beginning of fall semester, 9-11 happened. And it was just like a bolt from the thunderclouds, right? A lot of people around the world and certainly a lot of Americans, I felt my whole world had changed in a matter of minutes. I I felt ashamed, honestly, that I had been a little bit ignorant about what was going on in the world. And then I just felt this very strong conviction that I could be some kind of a translator between worlds. Because I think the same things that drew me towards uh, drama, let's say, well, it's storytelling, isn't it? Storytelling, yeah, storytelling yeah. and ability to get under the skin of people and move them and communicate with them and find out what motivates them and try to understand them better. That's exactly and, how I describe why I do what I do. Literally. Really? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much word for word. Yeah. And so fundamentally, I was like, okay, I think that this is something I can do. And this seems like the most important thing I could do. I don't really know how I'm going to do it or where I'm going to go. I did always have this sense that it was going to be the tip of the spear that I was drawn towards. With why? No real why would re- that? I, why? I don't honestly know because it's not like I was one of these people who like climbed mountains in my spare time and you want an adrenaline junkie. No, not at all. I had the advantage growing up of traveling a lot. My father is British. My mother's American. We lived between London and New York. My dad moved to Hong Kong when I was 14. I went to boarding school at a really young age. So I had that sort of feeling I could fit in anywhere, but didn't really belong to anywhere. And as long as I had internet and maybe AC, I could get by. And and then I guess I also just felt like when you looked at 9-11 and what had happened and what was going to happen in the aftermath of 9-11, it just seemed like that's where the story was. And if you wanted to understand how this had happened and why this had happened, then these were the places you were going to have to go to. So how did you start? I started all the way at the very, 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 very bottom of the bottom. I started out, I was an intern in Moscow for CNN for a few months, which was a great experience. I wanted to go to New York and understand the way like a newsroom worked and the way news organizations worked. CNN wanted me to wait for 
like two or three months to give me a full-time job in New York. And I would be like 23 by then. There's no way I can possibly wait. And so I went in to a job interview at Fox News, which to be honest was not where I wanted to work. However, on the spot, they hired me. And I was the overnight desk assistant and meant that I went into work at midnight and I finished work at nine in the morning. And then I would go and do Arabic lessons with this wonderful woman from Yemen. Do you speak Arabic fluently? I do, but not perfectly at all. So I speak conversationally. I can chat with people and do a simple interview and I can travel alone but I can't talk about things that are sophisticated. Got it. You can you can get the information you need. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I did that for two years and it was the most miserable time as careers are often when you start out because you know what you want to do, but the way that you start is not what you want to do, but you have to find a way to get your foot in the door and you're second guessing yourself and thinking, why did I do this? This is insane. And I really just wanted to get to Iraq because at this stage, the US had just invaded Iraq. And eventually I bugged them enough that they said I could go as a producer. And I went once for six weeks and I said, listen, if I move to the Middle East, will you keep hiring me to go back and forth to Baghdad? And they were like, yeah, because no one wanted to go to Baghdad anymore. It was like a year into the war and it was a disaster and it was dangerous and it was hot and Americans were starting to get fatigued with the story. So I quit my job at Fox. I moved to Beirut and I set up as a freelancer and started going back and forth to Baghdad. And that's how it all started. Is that where you met Lindsay Adario? I actually met Lindsay in Afghanistan. Okay. (laughs) A few years later at a U.S. military camp. Have you, I know you recently have spent some time in Ukraine. When did you come back from your last visit? So I spent like 11 weeks there earlier this year. I came back last in April, I want to say. I do want to go back, but it needs to be the right moment or the right time where it feels like the story is moving. Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking to Lindsay and saying that it seems like the world is fatigued with that war. Almost like the attention span for wars is the same as it is for a scandal. You know, they're like, oh, people do get tired of it. And look, that's just the reality of news. It doesn't mean that will always be the case. If something is grinding on, it becomes harder to get people to stay really focused on it. And I understand that. You know, I was in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, and you're talking breathlessly about how the Russians might take the town of Papasna. And well, now they've taken it. But my point being that, like, I didn't even know what the town of Papasna was six months ago let alone most people around the world who don't live in Ukraine. And so it gets that sort of granular incremental level where you need to start recalibrating how you choose your stories and finding stories that are going to pack a punch because maybe they have a great character or really intense emotional content or because they have significance in some way that hasn't already been illuminated. Do you get asked to consider narratives that you don't feel comfortable exploring? Not that often. I read a lot of calls from people on social media to dive into various narratives. And 
I, it's not for me to say that none of them merit further coverage. Some of them do. Some of them, I'm not the right person to tell that story. And some of them are just nonsense. I believe in truthfulness rather than neutrality. And so the idea that you constantly try to give the same amount of gravitas or import to a false narrative coming from one side as you do from the reality on the ground on the other side, I'm uncomfortable with that. For example, in the case of Ukraine, CNN has people going in and out of Moscow regularly. And actually, if I could get a Russian visa, I would go. It's an important side of the story. I want to understand what the Russian people are thinking and feeling about this right now. Let's talk about the neutrality. You mentioned maintaining neutrality. How do you keep your own opinion out of what you're reporting on? You know, I have occasionally been called a journalist and I thought, "Mm, I'm not really because I'm so opinionated about my perspective on Mm -hmm. whatever it is that I'm covering or whoever it is I'm speaking to. I personally would have a very hard time keeping my point of view out of what I'm reporting on. So how do you do that? I think, first of all, you accept the fact that absolute neutrality doesn't really serve anyone because then no one can even understand what you're trying to say. You would do better off as a news organization having your person in Moscow, if we're talking about the Ukraine example, having your person in Ukraine And we're reporting on what we're seeing and experiencing around us. Obviously, have enough common sense and enough experience doing this that we can provide some context as well. It's not in a vacuum. But if I see people going through hell, I'm going to say they're going through hell. And I don't really view that as being my opinion. No, it's sharing what you're observing. It's sharing what you're observing. I also think, honestly... When you get more experience about doing this work, you learn that there are ways to inject not so much your opinion into it, but a, a clear sort of sense or idea of a place or a story without being like, well, I think this and I think that. And well, yes, you can ask questions, but you can anticipate what the general answer would be. You can ask a question. a narrative as well. And you can talk to certain people. And, you know, I think that rather than pretending we're neutral, we just need to be very transparent about the process and about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. I deeply resent when people call us propagandists, as I hear from people in Russia a lot, because I do think that we have a set of ethics that we adhere to that require us to do a lot of due diligence before we can put something on the air. Which we need more of because people do just share information without due process and protocol. And then those things get interpreted as factual, which is often problematic. And that's partly a result of this culture where everyone on Twitter is now a journalist, right? And it's like, okay, I'm not saying you don't have really interesting perspectives that are very valuable and that should be part of the conversation. But it is just a perspective. But it's a perspective. It's an opinion. It's a hot take. It's sometimes deliberately provocative or whatever it might be. It's not journalism. Journalism is when I'm in Ukraine and the Russian invasion begins. Journalism can also be holding people accountable. It can be a number of different things, but it's definitely not sitting in Twitter thousands of miles away spouting off your opinion about things. 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not journalism. Thank you for clarifying that. Really do appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about what it's like for you when you come home from Mm. being in a war zone. I read that you said that you felt nothing or that you felt like you're, you were emotionally detached when you got home, mm. which made complete sense to me. How could you not be? Because you've been, it's two completely different environments. One requires you to remove your emotions from the situation and be in a high stress, fight or flight mode, if you will. And the other one requires for you to be stable and sturdy and vulnerable and emotionally connected, right? Mm. That's mm. the different states that those two roles require, I would imagine. What did you mean when you said, I come home and I don't feel a lot, especially Mm. when it's around my children? I thought that was very interesting for you to share. And I was pleased that you said that because I think a lot of people, even though they're not doing the job that you're doing, have a hard time switching between the different roles that we as women play. Yeah. The first thing I would say is often there's a conception when people talk about soldiers or civilians who have lived in war zones or journalists who cover conflict, that you go to these dangerous places, you experience this intense, horrifying scene, you feel depressed, you cry a lot, you are sad for the child that you saw who died, and then you talk about it and cry a lot and you have a few nightmares and then you're fine. That's that PTSD. <laughs> yeah. And the reality is something like way more complex and way less cathartic than that. Like I wish I could go and just emote and feel sad and absorb the full horror and then weep and then let go of it. And no, Much more often what happens is when you're in a war zone, you really have to compartmentalize because you've got to focus on doing the work and getting in and out safely. And so you're not absorbing a lot of it. You're still, of course, a human being in the moment and trying to be very present for the people that you're talking to, but there's a boundary. It wouldn't be appropriate for you to go to Yeah, I mean, you can't, you just can't lose it. It happens, but it's, you know, only ideally if there's some kind of a safe space. Then when you get home, you feel detached. You feel empty. You feel crap. You feel bored. You feel gray. You feel numb. You don't feel grief. And then you feel self-loathing because you're like, wow, I'm just a terrible person that instead of being like, oh, thank you for this beautiful life I have. And oh, I'm so sad for all those other people. You're actually just feeling like cranky. Uh, Well, actually, what you're you're talking about is experiencing trauma and the big trauma with this trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T, right? But you're experiencing different Mm -hmm. levels of trauma at work. And then when you come home, it makes sense that you're having that response. That is actually a trauma response. Yeah, I think some of it's trauma and some of it's just intense stress. No sleep, tons of adrenaline not eating properly, probably drinking too much coffee and smoking, vaping, chewing Nicorette, whatever it is that like keeps you awake for hours and hours and days on end. And you're 
totally immersed in the story with your team. You're doing important work. And then you come out and like, you're just going to, there's a crash. There's a crash that's going to happen. Now, I will say this. Since I had children, it's a very different experience because the love that I have for my children and the feeling of that connection is always there. I can have this much energy and feel so bad and still see that little chubby faces and it's just like the love geezer explodes. Kids have changed the way I respond and operate coming out of covering conflict. I get tired very quickly. I don't have a huge amount of energy in terms of like playing all day and waking up at five in the morning. And so that can be strenuous, but it is incredibly grounding for me because it's like the love is there. Mm. Because I can't lose touch with that somehow, that's also tied to why I do think it's important to have mothers covering war because it is the sort of oldest cliche in the book, but cliches are really born out of truisms, right? Which is that war correspondents get very cynical the longer they do this work and they get arrogant, detached, aloof. They struggle with substance abuse. Not all of them, obviously, but these are all like definitely very real hazards of the job. And being a mother sort of shifted me to a slightly different place. And I think that I am much more emotionally porous in a sense. And I don't any longer have the ability to just switch that off in the way that I used to. And I hope that when I'm in the field, that makes me a more compassionate reporter. It makes sense. You're talking about emotional availability and that of course, affects your lens on how you're reporting something, which I think is invaluable to allow for a more 360 perspective, one that isn't just intellect or just emotion. We're just talking about a more rounded experience, which is enabling you to report through a lens that, you know, has empathy and has compassion included in it. Yeah. I think you, well, you just put it beautifully. I agree. And I agree. If you love the conversation, then I wanted to tell you about another podcast I host called VS Voices. The VS Voices podcast provides a platform for women to speak their diverse truths, share personal stories, and advance discussions of issues that are important to them. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So how is that for you when you have to leave your kids a month at a time? Oh, that, that must be painful. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I just found out a few hours ago, I have to go to Pakistan tomorrow for the floods, which on the one hand, I'm delighted about in the sense that I think it's a really important story and I really want to be covering it. Um, But tomorrow is also my little one who's two. It's his first day of nursery. Oh my God. Um, And so, you know, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat that. It's shit. No, that just, just, no matter how you wrap it. How old is he? He's two and he only goes for half an hour on the first day anyway. But at this stage, I think a lot of it's just harder on me because as mothers, of course, we like feel guilty and flatly and, and fret endlessly that we're letting our children down in a hundred different ways. It's a trade-off. It is. And I think we all was raised with this idea that women can have it all. And it's like, mm. So I can have it all, but then I'm also going to have a nervous breakdown because that's the reality. 
And I, and I don't think that people talk about this enough. And you're right. Mm. We were raised with the concept that it's very possible for us to have it all. And it's not accurate. Something, well, there's only so many hours in a day. Something takes a hit. For me, I just move around what's taking the hit. Oh, yeah. I've neglected my relationship. That needs some maintenance. Better put some time there. Neglected my career. I just move it around between myself, yeah. my husband, yeah. my kids, and my career. Because yeah. I can't give all of it all the time to each yeah. one of those things. No. And that's exactly it. And so you pick your priorities in any given moment and you accept that some of the things that bring you like infinite joy, like female friendship, are going to be on WhatsApp chats a lot because there just aren't enough hours in the day, as you say. It's just not. Like you said, you're having to make a choice. Do you go to Pakistan and cover the floods and miss the first day and you have to Mm -hmm. to do the Mm -hmm. emotional weighing it up? You know, what's mm-hmm. the impact's going to be if I say no to going to Pakistan? I don't even know if you have mm-hmm. that luxury of doing that. But how is it going to affect my kid? Yeah. It's a constant reevaluation. No, I, I agree. I know one war correspondent whose kids started to break out in hives when he was a teenager every time his dad would go and he stopped covering war. That's actually a question for you. Have you ever had a conversation where, with your husband where you've been in a particularly high-risk environment, all of the environments you're in have some element of risk, but a very high-risk environment where your husband, when you've got home, has said, I didn't know if you were actually going to make it home, and I don't know that I can keep doing this. Not to the extent of, I don't know if I can keep doing this, but I had our team had a very close call in Ukraine, and our last trip, we were in the city of Kharkiv, and we went out with these ambulance workers, these incredibly brave young men and women who go into these areas that are being shelled day in and day out and risk their lives to go and rescue the injured and treat them. And so we heard a sort of volley of rockets, and the ambulance guys, we were at their depot hop in the ambulance and they're like, follow us. We're going to go see there's apparently a man injured in his home. And so we drove to this block of apartments. We were right behind them. And literally as we were walking into the door, into the entrance, we heard another volley of rockets hit really nearby. There wasn't a basement. And so the ambulance guys had us get under the sort of pretty sturdy concrete staircase And then within a few moments, another volley of rockets hit, but this time hit the next door entrance to where we were. So like 10 meters from where we were. And it was like nothing I've ever, I mean, that's as, I think as close as you can get to artillery and, you know, survive it certainly. And we had arrived five minutes later and we hadn't been under that staircase. I don't know if we would be having this conversation today. And so I did prep my parents and my husband. I was like, I have a piece coming out. And it's going to upset you. I think my husband didn't speak to me for like three or four days. He was really upset and he was pissed. Why was he pissed? Because he, you know, there's part of him that's like constantly pushing me to question my motivation for doing things. I understand for him as a visceral reaction when you're watching the mother of your children and someone you love put themselves in a very dangerous situation, it's a natural thing to respond with, you know, I'm mad at you. Why are you doing this? I can't really deny him that. I can say that 
the experience chastened me. Absolutely. My reaction was not, let's go out and do that again tomorrow. My reaction was, I will think long and hard before doing something like that again. There's always a risk, right? And I knew that story was riskier than others. I don't regret doing it because I really think what these young men and women are doing is amazing. And I felt strongly that it was worth documenting. But at the end of the day, the most important role in my life is the role of being a mother to my kids, definitely. And and so I do have a huge responsibility. Yeah, you do. Do you still feel that your answer to his question about why are you choosing certain assignments is justified? When you hear yourself answer his question, do you still feel convinced of your reasoning? I do. I don't know how it is for you, but I just have this fundamental feeling like this is what I do and this is what I'm good at. And also the whole reason my husband and I have a really good marriage and he does trust me is because he also knows I do a lot of stories that are not in conflict zones. I do stories about climate change. I do investigative stories. It really runs the gamut. Unfortunately, if you really want to do justice to what civilians are living through and you really want to give people a very real perspective of what things look and feel like on the ground, then there are times when you have to do dangerous assignments. I'm curious what your relationship to death is because you must have faced it, not only in witnessing people in their moment of death, but also, as you've just mentioned, come close to it yourself. So what is your relationship to death? It's obviously one still has a really strong fear of death, right? I have been close to death and it is a feeling of really sickly dread. And, but what you learn to do over the years is to discipline your mind. And that's very important because fear is a natural thing that serves you and tells you when you should be getting out of a place. But panic is very dangerous and can get you in a lot of trouble. And also fear quickly spins webs in your mind. Fear and imagination are like, woo, together you're Best heading right the panic express. And so before you know it, you've driving to a place and you've already imagined, conjured up six different ways you could get killed on the way or the way back. And if you don't discipline your mind, that is a very dangerous path to go down. Now, How do you discipline people, your mind? One of the ways that I try to do it and I do this, and this is a silly example. I used to be an uncomfortable flyer. And even now, if there's terrible turbulence, I'm not happy. But the way I deal with it is just to try in the moment to accept death, right? Mm -hmm. And to kind of surrender to like, if it is going to happen, there is nothing I can do about it. So all I can do is get myself into a really Zen space where I try to at least be peaceful and accepting that like it's out of it's my times. And similarly, in, in a war zone, I will just be focused only on what I know is real. So all the stuff could have, would have, should have, this could happen, that, no, it doesn't serve me. It serves me always in advance to have a plan for different contingencies. 
But when I'm actually, let's say, driving into a town where there is heavy fighting, I'm just we're going slowly, we're stopping, we're listening. What are we hearing? Where's the artillery coming from? And we are in a Zen state trying to focus on where the threat is, what the threat is, and how we can do our job safely without getting too close to that threat. If I start thinking of, oh no, any second now this could happen and I need to get out of the car or if a shell lands nearby and yeah, sometimes your reaction is get out of the car or, or you know, run. The worst thing you can do is run. Don't ever run. Hit the deck, maybe. Yeah, yeah, because you don't know what you're running into. So, for example, that time in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, when suddenly all these rockets started pounding into the building. And, yeah, your brain's like, let's get in the car and go. But you cannot do that. If you have good cover, you sit, you strategize with your team, you wait a bit until you feel like the volley is over, and then you get in the car. And, and hightail it out of there as quickly as you can. So it's basically about learning to accept what you can't control and be hyper calm and sensible about acting on what you can control. You don't want to do anything that's a kind of knee-jerk a reaction. That's very like life. You can apply that to life. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, you can. It's really hard to be that present in the moment the whole time in real life. You can't be on autopilot when you're in a dangerous situation. Which is great because being present has incredible benefits. And I actually want to talk about the language of war because it's something that I knew nothing about until I said, speaking to our mutual friend from war zones. Mm. And I would say, so how was your day? <laughs> and she would describe what she had done in that day. And it was like you're talking about. It's a whole language that you need to learn as a yeah. person who is in a war zone, like what you yeah. said. You don't run if you've got good cover, meaning if you have a safe space. You're listening for the artillery. How far away is that? There's a whole war language that mm. war journalists speak, that civilians like us do not speak, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating. And you've said this a couple of times since we've been speaking, as you get more experience, you learn more and more and more about what that language is and how to speak it when you're in those spaces. It's exactly right. It takes a while to learn it. And listen, soldiers have their own language too. And I'll go out with soldiers and I can understand like 50% of what they say. They speak in endless acronyms, which drives me crazy. So it's the factual language, the verbiage and the vernacular. It's everything that people are using in a practical sense. And then it's also intuition. And like you said, strategizing with your team. Every conflict is different. We work a lot with security consultants who come out on the road with us. And if I'm in a sort of long-range artillery situation like eastern Ukraine, for example, I want a security consultant with me who's been in the military, definitely. What do they do? Well, I mean, they're looking out for you on every single level from ensuring that you have spare tires and a second vehicle. And when you go to that apartment building that you turn the car so that it's facing out so that if you have to run, you're not trying to reverse and do a three point. It's many layers of precautions that you can take. But also 
that many of them tend to have a much better knowledge than I do, certainly, of weaponry, of the language of war, as you're saying. I can talk about artillery, but I can't necessarily get into the granular level of different types of artillery and the different types of sound. I can can tell the difference between incoming and outgoing, but there's different levels of expertise, let's say. But then there'll be other situations. For example, a few years ago in Afghanistan, before the Taliban took power, I went undercover to stay with the Taliban for three days. And this was based on working with an Afghan filmmaker who had good relations with them. And it had taken months to come up with an agreement with the Taliban. In that situation, I don't want a former military British guy who is a security consultant, right? In that case, my security is working with a really experienced Afghan filmmaker who understands the lay of the land and the way of the culture. And So every situation is unique. And yes, as a war correspondent working in many places, you build up a kind of glossary of terms. But every place you go, you really want to be attaching yourself to people who have a deeper knowledge of that specific arena. Because as much as there are commonalities, there is also a lot of difference in these places. And it's a big mistake that a lot of journalists make where you're pushing a driver, for example. No, 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 we want to go to that next town. And he's like, I I don't think we should go to that town. If your driver really doesn't think you should go to that town and he goes that town, don't go to the town, all right? Or at least pull over, sit, huddle, have a conversation about it, try to call people in the town and get a sense of what's going on there. Yes, you have to know a language, but you also have to know what you don't know and be a little bit humble. And and as you said, it's regional and mm. every place has its own way of operating. A hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. So what are the stories that you feel passionately about telling now? Well, I just got back from Afghanistan and... Between everything that's happening, obviously, with girls not being able to go to secondary school, women being pushed out of public life, I feel like that's a story that I want to make sure that I keep telling and that I keep going back. And then I traveled to Somalia earlier in the summer. It was already a devastating situation there. And now the UN has warned again that there's going to be a famine unless people do something really quickly. That's a story that I'll be watching very closely and wanting to go back and make sure that it's in the front pages because sometimes these stories seem like, oh, Somalia, wow, that's like a totally different conflict in a totally different place. And But actually, it's about climate change. And actually, it's about the food crisis. And it's about the inflation and fuel prices. And these things are all connected. Yeah. And and so I really think that part of my job as a journalist is helping people to understand that what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. And I think that climate change has helped us all understand that. The idea that like, oh, nation states, it's just everything stays in your nation state. No, it doesn't. What happens over here has a profound impact on a place halfway across the world for a number of different reasons, whether it's about the environment or whether it's about gas prices. It is all connected. Well, I want to thank you so much for the work that you do. I will continue to be watching you from afar and so appreciating all the stories that you bring to us. And thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. I've really loved chatting. 
I have. I hope we can do it in person at some point. I would love that. Clarissa, thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. And don't forget that if you love the conversation, then check out VS Voices, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter and follow me on social media at Amanda Decadene.